Romans chapter 12, verse 15 is our text this morning. And we're working our way a little bit slowly, but we're working our way so that we could get it slowly and down into our hearts where it could transform our lives. We're working our way through chapter 12 of Romans. And the series is entitled Committed to Worship. And we're looking at verse 15 this morning. And I want to start out this morning telling you about one of God's faithful missionaries that you may never have heard. His, ma his name was Alan Gardner. Alan Gardner experienced many physical difficulties and hardships in his service to Christ. But despite his troubles, Gardner said this once, while God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. In case you're wondering if he's still alive, let me tell you this, in 1851, when he, when he was 57, that answers that question, he died of disease and starvation. Can you believe that? He died of disease and starvation while serving Christ on an island at the southern tip of South America. Now, what I'm about to tell you about Alan Gardner, I want you to take like a string, wrap it around the finger of your heart, and hold on to it. Don't forget it, because it's going to be the theme that helps us understand what's it really mean to rejoice with those who rejoice, and why is that so hard for us to do? Here's what happened. When his body was found, his diary lay nearby, and it bore the record of hunger, thirst, wounds, and loneliness. And the very last entry in his little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly. Here's what it said. And here's what I want you to put around your finger. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now friends, I find that true story extraordinary. How can a man who is serving God, dying, barely able to write alone on an island... How is he able to say, I am, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God? Last Sunday, we looked at verse 14, and we saw two ways that we are to live toward those outside the church. We're to pray for God to pour out his grace, mercy, and goodness on those who are pursuing us with evil intent. That's what the word persecute means. Not only are we Christians, fully committed followers of Christ, to refuse to retaliate, but we're not to hope for harm to come towards that person who is hurting us. And instead, really mean from our hearts that God would bring transformation and salvation instead. Now friends, the Roman believers, this is the book of Romans, Paul wrote it to the believers in Rome. They were persecuted believers. The government, the people of Rome were pursuing them, the Christians, with evil intent to bring harm. And friends, listen, isn't this you? After a while of people wanting to hurt me, aren't you like me? You sort of want to get away from it. You want to isolate. 
You want to remove yourself. You want to lock the door. You want to stay inside. You get tired of being hurt over and over again. I'm assuming that I'm speaking to like-minded believers this morning. But isolated, unfeeling believers cannot be effective in serving God. That's the entire point of Romans chapter 12. What's it mean to serve God fully? And if we isolate ourselves, you cannot be effective at that. So the, the challenge that lies before us this morning is this. Can we move toward others in both joy and sorrow, now listen, and bring the hope of Jesus Christ to their lives? You know, so intent was that great Quaker George Fox in doing this. He actually wrote a prayer in his diary. And that prayer went, I prayed to God that he would baptize my heart into all conditions so I might be able to enter the needs and conditions of all. That's not a courageous prayer. I don't know what one would be. Christians should be involved in the lives of those who do not know Jesus. Now, why would I even bother to say that? Well, friends, there's a lot of Christians that may not believe doctrinally in isolating themselves, but living wise, practically, they do that. And the two powerfully effective times that Paul's about to show us that are opportunities that for us to share Christ are times of joy and times of sorrow. In fact, who better to understand joy than the one who has learned to rejoice in hope, who better to understand times of trouble than the one who knows the God of all comfort? So Paul writes, here it is, verse 15, that was all introduction. Here is the verse we're looking at. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. One person wrote this, a sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy that's shared is a joy made double. We're going to learn that this morning as we look to see what is Paul telling us? What are the next two ways the fully committed believers need to be living towards those outside the church? Here's the third one we looked at two last week. Share in God's goodness to others. Share in God's goodness to others. Now, friends, I want to bring something to your attention that undoubtedly most of you already knew. As you look back at verse 15, and you read what it says, rejoice with those who rejoice, here it is, so simple, but yet life-transforming, rejoice is a verb. Now, all of you, I'm sure, unlike myself, were great grammatically adept people. I was not that great in grammar. I did really well in English, very poor in grammar. How do you do that? I don't know. Rejoice is a verb. Now think, think with me, you ready? Simply, if it's a verb, it means it's alive. It means it has movement. It means to rejoice is action-oriented. 
We are to move toward people, not sit waiting for happy people to come to us. We are to move toward those who are rejoicing. This is what God does. Psalm 35, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare, the welfare of his servant. God loves happy, prosperous, joyful Christians. Isaiah 63, in all their affliction, God was afflicted. When people are afflicted, God's afflicted. When people are, are happy and joyful, God's joyful. This is what the genuine love of verse 9, look what it says, verse 9. This is what the genuine love of verse 9 does as it moves toward people to enter their world. A fully committed follower of Christ enters into the joy of others with joy and the grief of others with grief. The point is, we move. The point is, you can't live life statically. It's a dynamic process serving Christ. We take the initiative to move toward people, whether they're believers or unbelievers. We take the movement to enter into their worlds called empathy. And Paul says when somebody is happy, when somebody is well off, we should rejoice with them. You know, we learned when we looked at verse 12, where it says rejoice and hope, we learned what the word rejoice means. It was a way that people would greet each other in the morning. This is the word that they would use. Hymns that they would sing ended with this word rejoice. It was a customary greeting when somebody opened up a letter. Instead of what we do, dear John, they would write rejoice. Rejoice means to be happy and well off. That's what it means, simply. Nothing complicated about this. It means to be happy and well off. Now, friends, listen, please. Doesn't it strike you a little bit odd that Paul would even need to tell us to rejoice with those who rejoice? As I'm studying this text for this sermon, that was the first thing that struck me. Why does Paul have to tell us to rejoice? Isn't it just natural to be happy when other people are happy? But the truth is, our flesh does not easily rejoice at other people's good fortunes. They really don't. We tend to weep with those who weep better than we rejoice with those who rejoice. When a person is worse off than we are, it's often easy to feel bad for them. But when someone is better off than we are, it is very, very difficult to feel good for them. Oftentimes, even more so when the one receiving good fortune is not even a believer. In fact, here we think, here I am, trying to live a good Christian life, barely making it, and he gets everything handed to him on a silver platter. Or we've been trying to have children for years, and we can't, yet that couple, they never goes to church, she's pregnant again. Well, if I didn't tithe regularly, 
then my family could go on those vacations too. So why won't God just bless me with more money? These are thoughts and a thousand others that if we're really, really honest, go through our minds. It's not quite as easy to rejoice with those who are prosperous and well-off and experiencing good fortune. In fact, how well do we, we rejoice when our, our neighbor gets that promotion and we don't? Or when cancer spreads in my body, but a friend, his goes into remission. Or how easy is it to rejoice when addictive cravings are a meat grinder to my soul, but yet all around me others are being set free? How easy is it to rejoice then? Why do we struggle with this? And this is where I want you to take that string, unravel it, hold on to it. So that we can say with Gardner, when he said, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. How well or why do we struggle in rejoicing when others rejoice? Now here it is, the immediate answer. I was waiting for that to happen. Where's Carl? The immediate answer is this. We all think of this, or at least most of us. We're just selfish people. Now, honestly, who, who was thinking that? Be honest. Come on, don't make me look stupid. All right, a lot of us. That is almost always, in fact, I brought this up this last week with somebody, and their immediate answer is, we're selfish. How do you argue with that? It's universally true that we're all selfish, right? Come on, let's be honest. But I think the problem goes deeper than that. And if you can understand this, and drive this to your heart, friends. I really believe this has a power to transform the way you live. You ready? Let's take a little journey down into the heart. Can I suggest that when we find it hard to rejoice with those who rejoice, the most fundamental reason for it is that we really don't trust that God always has our highest good in mind. Man, I didn't come to church to think. I understand. I'm asking you to think. Friends, in my experiences, personally and with people in counseling, this is the number one reason why we have a hard time rejoicing. Why we struggle with jealousy. Why we struggle with envy and coveting. Because it comes from a lack of faith in God's supreme and constant goodness toward his people. Do we really believe that our highest good is in the mind of our sovereign God when we're struggling with our health while others are enjoying theirs. At that point, are we really satisfied with what God has given to us, knowing that not one additional thing can make us more supremely happy? In other words, God's given us everything we need to have the highest joy in life, now, do you believe that? To genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice requires us to be satisfied in the knowledge that we have everything we need from God to live life in our own fullest joy. Believe me, a person who is Living a life of singleness 
must come to this conclusion if they're going to have peace and joy in their life. If somebody you knew inherited a million dollars, would you rejoice with them, honestly? Would you secretly be envious, jealous, maybe a little angry? If so, then you really don't, I really don't believe that God has given me everything I need to be the most happy I can be right now. I believe that a million dollars or a large sum of money would actually make me happier. Now, there is a word for this in the Bible. And I would really encourage all of us to study it. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is the supreme notion that something other than God can make my life supremely joyful. And so we wrap our existence in the effort to get it. I really wonder if Paul wrote Romans 12, 14, and 15 as he was looking at the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Here's what that says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, our father loves his children. And he sends good to those who are even his children. That's what the psalmist says. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Why? Why does God do this? Now listen, this is so important. Why does God send good? Why does God give prosperity to those who are not even his children? Here it is. Why? So that he might win them over with his mercy, grace, and goodness. Friends, that's what beats in the heart of God. The very thing that we are to pray for regarding those who pursue us with evil intent is is mercy, grace, and goodness. This is what God wants to supply. So to rejoice with those who rejoice is to be happy that God's grace is being displayed in their lives because we know that he's already displayed it in ours. To not rejoice with those who rejoice is to work against what God wants to do in winning that person over with his goodness, grace, and mercy. Why? Because we aren't satisfied with what he's given to us. We really believe if we only had that, we would be happier. Friends, it's the great lie of the world, the devil, and the flesh, they all communicate that very notion to us. We need this to be happy. And all the while, like a little whispering spirit, God is saying, I've given you everything you need now for your supreme joy. And it's all found in Christ. This is why these seven obligations that we're talking about, we're on the third one. It's why they're only possible when we fully commit ourselves to God. It's motivated by his display, by the mercies that you've seen. Paul opens up chapter 12 with it's motivated by God's display of unmatched grace and mercy to us. 
It's the fully committed Christian who no longer allows the world to squeeze her into its mold, instead renewing her mind, being transformed so that she wants to do God's will. It's only that person, friends, who can fully and consistently live out these obligations. And God's will, by the way, let me remind you of something. We should be most interested in what God's will is for us so that we can learn to be fully committed servants because a servant lives to do the will of the master. And God's will is to extend his mercy, extend his grace and goodness to to people to draw them to him for salvation. It's the only explanation why my older brother John wasn't killed in countless car accidents. So that someday, and he has, he would turn back to God. And when God does prosper, the unbeliever, the Christian, should rejoice. Not covet, not get angry, not become envious, but rejoice genuinely. Be joyful in another, another person's prosperity as God is displaying his grace in their lives. So that we could say with Paul, my joy would be the joy of you all. Friends, let me bring this portion to a close by asking you this. Can you really bless those who are pursuing you with evil intent to do harm? Can you really bless them asking for God's mercy, goodness, and grace to be given to them? Can you really mean that from the heart? Honestly? And can we do the same thing as we see God blessing other people and be those people who help the unsaved receiver of God's grace, goodness, and mercy understand the true source? Can we be so utterly convinced that God has provided everything I need, everything you need for your greatest happiness, so convinced that your heart could be free from envy, free from coveting, free from jealousy, and move towards people genuinely rejoicing that God is displaying his love in their lives. That's what Paul's saying to us. But like he always does, or often does, he flips the coin. We've looked at the, the rejoicing with those who rejoice. Now he flips the coin and says, can you weep? with those who weep. In other words, can you share in God's comfort to others? That's the fourth obligation that we all have to those in the world. Can we share in God's comfort to others? Friends, can you imagine (coughs) the pain of driving Interstate 75 from Georgia with your wife and 12-year-old son heading for a vacation when in a split second the unthinkable happens. This is the story of my friend Art that I pastored in Georgia who was driving along at 70 miles per hour. His son sprawled across the back seat, unbuckled. When his car suddenly went out of control and struck the dividing barrier between the highways and literally split the car in half, ejecting Ryan, his son, hundreds of feet down the highway. Friends, Art worked on the railroad all of his life. The man was as tough as rawhide. 
But he didn't know what to do with the tragic death of his son, Ryan. He bottled it up, true story, bottled it up in anger and bitterness and self-condemnation, and it leaked like radioactive waste into every one of his relationships. Now let me ask you, what would you do if it was you instead of me that goes to visit him? Paul tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now he flips a coin, he says, weep with those who weep. He means to share in God's comfort to others. It's what fully committed Christians of Christ do. And we live in a pain where a world where pain is universal. We live in a world that couldn't care less, so the Christians should care more. So Paul tells us how to move toward those who are weeping with heavy hearts of sorrow. Weep with them, not just for them, which is what we're better at doing. Weep with them. Again, it's relationship that Paul is after, not just sitting here, but in a verb, move, be action oriented, dynamic, move intentionally toward the person in sorrow and weep with them. It's one thing, friends, to be happy. When you hear news of another's happiness, it's another thing to move toward them and move toward them with God being the giver of all good things. That's, that's very difficult to do. Here, we're to move toward the sorrowful person in genuine, empathy-filled relationship. Now, let me tell you something that you may never have heard before. I never heard this before in my life until this last week. Did you know that when Herod built the temple in Jerusalem, it had an entrance located at the base of the southern wall, the remains of which are still recognizable today. And farther east on that same wall was the exit. Here's the entrance. Here's the exit. The people were to enter through the opening that allowed them to go through the wall, ascend the stairs to the temple area, and then go out through the exit. Now, this is fascinating. Huge crowds would flow in and out in steady streams, but there was one exception. One group of worshipers was to go the opposite way, entering by way of the exit and leaving through the entrance. True story. This is how it worked. I never heard of this before. This group was made up of those who were suffering and filled with sorrow. And as they bumped into and squeezed by each other, the two groups would come face to face. The sad faces of those who were sorrowful could be seen by those going the opposite direction. And in those brief moments, their grief could be shared. Friends, they intentionally designed it like this, that this would provide sufferers with a means to begin their journey back to life. Paul tells us to weep, which describes the noise and agitation that accompanied crying and weeping. It was the manifestation of grief. Not just tears being shed, over great sorrow, but manifesting grief like kindness and concern and compassion and a shoulder to cry on if needed. Now, men especially. Paul has less in mind tears 
than he does inward identification with a person's sorrow, called compassion. Now, I hear all the time, Pastor Tim, I'm a man. I don't cry. You're a man with a heart filled with Christ. And like Christ, men and women can have compassion. It's genuine, loving compassion in us that moves us to feel sorrow when a friend does. The willingness to share in their pain. There are, there are many ways, however, that we stay apart or above another person's sorrow. See if you don't do this. You ready? What do you do when somebody is really grieving? Some try to lift up another's heavy heart by getting them to look on the bright side or try to joke and make light of the situation. The Word of God has an answer for us. Proverbs 25, 20, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. But other people, they begin to tell, this is so common, they begin to tell tales of their own suffering that's always worse than the one suffering. You do that? When I was early on in ministry, I used to think I had to go to grieving people and find the right words for them that could help them get through their grief. There are no right words in the peak of suffering. And others, uncomfortable with messy feelings, immediately try and move that person straight into the realm of the rational. Here's how they do it. They aren't, that person's just not suffering anymore. We should be happy. They're no longer suffering. Or your son will come back to the Lord. He just has to straighten things out for a while. That brings absolutely nothing of comfort to the sufferer. Yet it's a way to stay apart and above the messiness of feelings and compassion. A lot of us do it. Dr. Paul Brand wrote in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and I should tell you, Brand was a doctor who was also a missionary and worked most of his life with lepers. And he said this, when I ask patients and their families who helped you in your suffering, I hear a strange, imprecise answer. The person described rarely has smooth answers and a winsome, effervescent personality. It's almost always someone who is quiet, understanding, who listens more than talks, who does not judge or even offer much advice, a sense of patience, someone there when I needed him. A hand to hold, an understanding, bewildered hug, a shared lump in the throat. Those are non-verbal, highly empathetic, relational means to come to those who are suffering. Now, friends, this is what Paul is saying that we've got to learn to do. You move towards those who are suffering, who are weeping with not happy songs, not blithe advice, not rational counsel, with weeping, with manifestations of grief called compassion. It's compassion that makes a person feel the pain of hurting people. To weep with those who weep is to be sensitive to their disappointments, their hardships, their sorrow. It's to remember your own difficulties and let that work through your heart so that it shapes the way you come to them. Knowing with utter clarity that if it wasn't for the grace of God, it would be me in your situation. 
It's to see the person in serious need of God's comfort, which he often gives through his very own people. You know, one of the most unrecognized yet ever-present forms of suffering in this church are almost always divorced people. It's the silent suffering. How do you move towards somebody who is divorced when you're still happily married? If not for the grace of God, there go you. That's how you move towards someone who's suffering in something that you haven't yet tasted. You move there with grace, mercy, and goodness, and love. It's the heart of God who, Jesus, who, who weeped over Lazarus. Why? Because he loved him. That's the common denominator. If I really love you and you're struggling, I'm going to struggle. If you're struggling and I'm not struggling, that might reveal the extent of my love for you. God is so moved by our weeping friends. Listen to this. The psalmist prayed to God, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God bottles our tears. He writes them in his book. He's so intimately aware of it. They're like a precious ointment to him. The bottles were most referred or most used for perfume. Friends, let me end this with this. You're right. I have all your attention. Here it is. A mark of how fully committed I am to serving God is how I move towards people in their joy and people in their sorrow. And if they're rejoicing, I need to learn to point them to the giver of all good things. And if they're weeping, I need to learn to point them to the only one who is the God of all comfort. The key is moving toward others, which genuine love propels in light of God's rich mercy towards me. It makes me want to move to give that to other people, that they would discover that. So will we move toward them, especially when, as in that passageway to the Temple Mount, we come face to face with them? What will you do? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord, for Paul, faithful servant. He wrote what he lived. Lord, he gave himself to you. He stepped on that altar as a living sacrifice. He was exclusively yours, extraordinarily pleasing to you. Lord, he stopped and he battled against the world. He would not conform himself. He would not let the world squeeze him into its mold. But Lord, he renewed his mind with the word of God and the renewing mind transforms the, the heart so that he could love, so that he could be humble, so that he wouldn't think more of himself than others, so that he could rejoice with those who rejoice and point them to you, the giver of all good things, and that he could weep with those who weep and offer the comfort of the God who stores up tears in his bottle. Lord, we're going to come face to face this week undoubtedly with people in either one or both of these categories. Lord, I pray that we would genuinely know 
that we have everything we need now to live a life of supreme joy and happiness. We don't need anything more. If we did, you would give it. Lord, let us be freed from coveting and envy and jealousy to genuinely love those who are prospering. And Lord, for those who are weeping in sorrow, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that if it wasn't for your grace, that would be us. And that we would move towards them and love, genuine love, Lord, to bring them your comfort. And Lord, that comfort most richly comes through relationship and compassion. Lord, I pray that you would teach us these things. We love you. We thank you that you've displayed them both joy and weeping. You've rejoiced with those who rejoice. You've wept with those who wept. Lord, you've already lived this. You know how hard it is. You know our obstacles in our way. Lord, I pray that you would remove them, change our hearts, and let us be fully committed followers of Christ. And to this we pray, amen.